Welcome to Inspire and Innovate, a podcast for educators. We are educators and instructional coaches at St. Andrew's Episcopal School in beautiful Jackson, Mississippi. Our Inspire and Innovate movement seeks to make visible the expertise of teachers while also upping our game in conversation with other thought leaders. I'm Shay Egger and I work with early childhood and elementary school faculty to support the use of different teaching strategies and tools to foster real world learning experiences for students. I'm Toby and I teach fifth grade math I'm Julie Rust, and I work with middle and upper school faculty to explore the many ways we can cultivate learning experiences with youth to invite them into engagement with content, skills, and community. Y'all, teaching is hard, and it's never been harder than the past 11 months or so. That's why our first series is dedicated to investigating teaching in the time of COVID. Charlie Jenkinson has held various leadership roles in three of UK's leading boarding schools, including Eton College, and is currently Chief Strategy Officer for the World Leading Schools Association. Charlie has developed a deep understanding of schools as complex systems, fostered through oversight roles in a variety of organizations, including as Vice Chair of a multi-academy governing body located in one of UK's more deprived communities. Throughout his career, Charlie has worked with schools and universities in countries such as the USA, China, Turkey, Japan, and Russia. This has led to Charlie's strong belief that schools have responsibility to act as powerhouses of social and global mobility. Charlie is committed to widening access to excellence in education, serving local and global needs, and is relentless in the pursuit of transformative impact for individual students. During our conversation, Charlie spoke eloquently about the necessity of moving from extrinsic to intrinsic motivation, the value of intercultural intelligence, networks as sites of possibility, and, surprise, the ways that math teaching can help build a disposition toward global citizenship. Who knew? Without further ado, our conversation with Charlie Jenkinson. We are so glad to have the wonderful Charlie Jenkinson join us. Um, from the World Leading Schools Association Foundation. And um, gosh, we have a lot of questions, a lot of interests, and we've already established that we all are really missing travel this year <laughs> um, and feel grateful for things like this Google Meet that enable us to at least connect uh, with, with someone in a different place. So Yeah. So one of my questions is always, uh, how did you manage to get into the current thing you're doing? Because I know a lot of teachers... And people who work with education, it's like a lifelong dream. You know, they were mm -hmm. like, I taught my stuffed animals. I personally kind of fell into it backwards. But I'm curious, kind of, what's your history and what led you to be so passionate about kind of, and, and you say so in your name, it's a world, the world leading school. So I'm like, that's, that's a really big thing that you guys are stepping up to. So I'm curious, uh, what made you personally feel like that was something that you wanted to do? Well, well, thank you. First of all, it's it's really fabulous to uh, to be here speaking with you all, even if we're not not all together in person, as would would be our preference. Um, you know, I really love the the concept behind your podcast, and uh, really excited about how the whole series is going to open our minds um, to to the different ways in which people construct the education landscape. I mean, to to go to your question, Toby, I think there's it's kind of a couple of underlying drives one of which is why do I have a drive to transform education? And the other is why to do that on a global scale and that international collaboration. And then maybe I'll touch upon that name World Leading Schools Association um, at the end as well. I guess really the, the purpose of transforming education really has, has multiple foundations. I'll try and be quick in terms of those key driving points for me. It really started with my experience as a teacher, uh, sorry, as a student right from the very beginning. And I actually had a very different entry point to teaching as well. I think most teachers, certainly in the UK, where the whole education system is geared towards subject specialization and your university degree is in a subject, most teachers go into teaching thinking about it age 20, 21, coming out of university, clear subject passion, and then the obvious next step is to go into the classroom and, and continue that. And obviously, there's lots of other factors as to why they want to do that uh, as well. But that tends to be a driving force. Whereas in some ways, I had to sort of 
find the subject I was going to teach. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean I didn't go to university. You know, I did. I had a, a strong, a, you know, a strong subject interest by that point. But I wanted to be a teacher from the age of around about nine or ten. And, and I actually had a really clear idea as to what I wanted to do in teaching. Um, and the subject was always peripheral for me. Mm. Uh, and the reason for that is, is, you know, I'm extremely fortunate. Um, as a student, I had what what is globally considered a pretty excellent education. So um, not only is the, the, the UK education system globally highly thought of, but I was fortunate enough to go to, to Eton College as my main sort of secondary school and therefore have access to the incredible opportunities and resources that a school like that has. The pastoral and the co-curricular experience at Eton were truly outstanding. I mean, they really had a transformative impact on my personal development. But I always felt the academic experience was lacking. It seems strange that, you know, the school yeah. prides itself on these phenomenal subject specialists. Um, and it's not really a... Uh, it's not really the fault of those teachers, but the whole academic system was just on a treadmill. That's the experience I had. And traditional extrinsic motivations just didn't work for me as a student. <laughs> They've never been something to really sort of have any kind of impact on me. And so that's no pizza educator. parties. Pizza parties didn't work for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and same with sort of parents telling me about final grades and the importance of that didn't have any impact for me uh -huh. either. Um, but as an educator, I... Not only did I sort of see more evidence of that, but I became increasingly aware of why it's the case. Mm. And I learned that it's not down to decisions made by individual teachers. It's not made by decisions, uh, you know, individual decisions made in individual schools. It's that there is this entire system driving these really powerful narratives that have set the target schools need to aim for. As we know, educators, same with healthcare workers, others in these sort of vocational service industries, extremely conscientious. They're committed and they've become experts at hitting the bullseye of the targets that are foisted upon them. But I just believe educators have been forced to hit the wrong targets. And that sort of links on to why the global scale. Transformative impact, in my view, will come through the power of networks. It will come through multi-agency work. It's not going to be achieved through single schools. Uh, and I also believe that as a sort of interconnected world, we can't believe that we can, we can take on these big challenges just using the resources of a single nation state without external influences. Uh, and nor do I believe we want to constrain the impacts to a single nation state. So, you know, there's sort of, that's been some of the underlying foundations. Uh, one, one quick example as well, of a sort of a moment that, influenced me as an educator and helped me understand the importance of human skills rather than just the sort of the performance that, mm. that our systems drive us towards. Um, I attended a talk by two survivors of the Srebrenica massacre. So the sort of uh, Bosnia 1995, 8,000 Bosniak Muslim men and boys were killed in about 10 days. Mm. At the end of the talk, they left us with a really powerful message. They simply said, this massacre was carried out by the most educated people mm -hmm. in our country. Yeah. Now, what does that tell you about what we think of makes a great education <laughs> and how we prioritize wow. performance in, in you know, what can be easily measured over the human skills? Uh, and that's been a, a pretty powerful um, factor. So, yeah, there's been some big decisions. You know, I entered as a, a career, my, my career path in some ways was kind of pre-mapped out because there's not a huge number of choices in education. I was ambitious, so I wanted to be ahead. Uh, I also really, because I like the pastoral side, I wanted to be a housemaster at Eton. And those two roles, housemaster and head teacher, two roles I've never had. I probably will never have either, bizarrely. Um, and, and always for, for good reasons, the things that have happened. When I was in the process of, being offered headships, it kind of really struck me. What am I doing? Um, I'm going to spend three years, four years in a school, really focused on one or two core objectives set by governors mm. to have impact. Why? So that's going to get me into the next slightly bigger school. Yeah. And by the time I've been through two, three schools, my, my hope, my belief when I started teaching was then I'll be able to go and do something 
really transformative. I'd seen heads who had retired and been able to go and do interesting things around the world. I sort of thought that's what I want to do. I could see that path. And then I began to become increasingly aware that actually the world is changing from the world I entered uh, as a student. There's now international organizations. There's, there's huge international schools networks. They were interesting to me. But fundamentally, I, I'd volunteered with Welter since its foundation. I knew the organization. Um, it's an organization I care really deeply about. It's a, it's a mission that I believe in. I believe it's got the right resources, the right resource base to be able to realize its mission. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I started the long process of trying to convince people that they needed me to be involved in Welser. <laughs> and, you know, so that's how I got in. I just, just quickly, Toby, you asked about World Leading Schools Association. Um, it, it's a difficult name. And if you come up with names for organizations, it can be difficult. And some people think leading schools, what does that mean? Do, are we some sort of self-serving group mm. who, who tries to sort of, you know, keep ourselves as elite and only formed of a certain type of school? Really, the leading schools means we're trying to lead schools. We're trying to lead change in education. And it's schools that have committed to that and have the resources, the personnel, the values, you know, that they're already on the way to leading that change in their, their own communities. But they recognize that by coming together as a global group, they can learn from others to help them to, to really have meaningful, impactful, transformative change in their communities. Great. Well, you just answered my second question uh, already. You just, it's as though you uh, read my mind, but um, just wanted to briefly comment um, on, on your comments before around sort of the system being on a treadmill, the uh, reliance on all sorts of extrinsic motivators. These are things that we talk about and think a whole lot about, um, I know, at our school, um, and yet find that these systems are so deeply entrenched. So we're, exci we're excited about this conversation. We find um, that a lot of times what's happening is our classroom teachers are operating within a very traditional system, but they're figuring out ways to subvert that system in ways that are, are better for students um, in, in different ways. I can think of three ways Toby does that in his own classroom. Um, so anyway, we're, we're going to be excited um, to think both very big with you and also then get a little bit micro and think about like, okay, so I'm a classroom teacher. What does that mean exactly? Mm -hmm. um, so also heard a lot of like, reminded me of that very, very famous animated video with Sir Ken Robinson uh, in terms of your talk about sort of, we are producing these, these little systems. Absolutely, yeah, the um, treadmill, the industrialization. Yes. And I didn't know if it was because of your accent that I made that connection, but <laughs> might have been, might have been. Um, well, so you have already hit on this mission um, and the vision of the World Leading Schools Association Foundation. And for our listeners that aren't familiar with it um, on the website, it's all about fostering collaboration between students, educators, educators and leaders across secondary and university education contexts to foster cross-cultural dialogue and global citizens. It's a tall order. It's a powerful order. And I think what I'm really interested in is, you know, you can tell us more sort of about the mission and, and what those things mean, um, this notion of, of cross-cultural dialogue. I'm really interested in sort of dialogue across difference in my own work um, and what does it mean to be a global citizen. But I'd love for you, this current series is really focusing on this moment, this historical moment, and how we have come through a year of, of sort of what does it mean to teach and live and hu be humans together in a pandemic. And we're now, you know, we see light at the end of the tunnel and in some ways uh, there's hope and then in other ways things are still really scary so I wonder if you could speak a little more about those abstract drivers and the mission but also how um, have those taken shape differently or maybe more vividly mm. um, in this current historical moment yeah certainly and um, I mean to start start with that mission and, and really what drives Welsa as, as a foundation um, you know fundamentally we we believe that schools are the powerhouses of social and global mobility and that children of all income levels, all backgrounds, should be given the same opportunities to learn, to travel and develop as global citizens. So, you know, it's, it's um, we don't believe that's the current reality. <laughs> Fundamentally, that's why we exist yeah. as an organization. Um, and we actually believe that the rather than the sort of current paradigm of globalization changing that situation, it's actually increasing the gap. And it's increasing the gap between the haves and the haves nots. I mean, our, our last strategy meeting, we, we were all in agreement, really. The pandemic has exaggerated that even more. Mm. Um, so, so as I said to, you know, before in response to Toby's question, our, our mission is, is to sort of lead change in education. And we do this by synthesizing global excellence. 
uh, and, and that allows us to create globally accessible learning experiences for educators and students that no single school on its own could provide. So these experiences are unique, they are innovative, they are transformative because they're intercultural and they ensure that learners develop um, the lens to see the world through the eyes of others. Not only do they develop the sense of purpose greater than themselves, but then they also develop the human skills to respectfully and meaningfully work with others towards appropriate, uh, you know, global change. And, and that last bit, I think, is particularly important. As I said, the current paradigm of globalization is not working. Um, it does not respect the fact that there are other cultural ideals and perspectives that are not the same as those that, that had the power, certainly post-Second World War, the power to form the supranational institutions that now drive global activity. And so, you know, when, when students around the world call for change, they don't always understand the organizational structures that are in place around the world. You need to work with those organizational structures. But that doesn't mean those organizational structures are fixed. That They may take more time, more effort, involve more people to change them. But our students will be the people who have to make the decisions as to what they want to keep and what they want to change. And we want them to be very mindful and aware of that. Um, so so that, that's a sort of important thing. Do, does it matter uh, following pandemic? Has the pandemic changed everything for us? Well, it matters more than ever. <laughs> and it's, that, that's the impact the pandemic's had. Not, not only because of the pandemic itself. I think the pandemic has played a really helpful role, if I may say so, <laughs> you know, kind of like a little bit selfishly. Uh, you know, obviously it's had... Um, uh, incredibly uh, negative impacts on you know huge numbers of, of people and um, uh, things around the world. But one thing the pandemic has done is it has highlighted enduring challenges. Mm. Um, that and and you know sort of highlight the challenges that that drive this need for change. Um, but what it's done positively is it's accelerated some of the key tools for change. Um, and therefore, I think this is actually now a mission we have a responsibility to move quickly on. The conditions are right. We, we can't just stay in sort of preparation and future planning mode. The conditions are right. Um, so, you know, it's not just about the pandemic. Headlines around the world right now are dominated by situations, events, themes that demonstrate that the human skills we really value as educators just not driving human interactions. Uh, this is Welsh's 10th year. It's its 10th anniversary. There'll be the time for good celebrations on that pandemic allowing uh, during the course of the year. So, you know, but as well as sort of celebrating what we've achieved in the last 10 years, we're very aware that setting up the next 10 years requires us to listen to actually what is a really unique network. It's a network of associate schools who don't just represent themselves but actually represent partnerships communities pretty extensive networks in their own regions it's uh, a network that has a lot of university involvement you mentioned sort of tertiary education very very important giving us a complete different perspective on education than the associates themselves but then we also have a network of global business leaders who again are committed to our mission and support that and so by listening to all those different areas we can really ensure that we can have the transformative impact we aspire to and, and to lead change in these enduring challenges. Happy almost birthday, by the way. I feel like we should break out the birthday cake and sing a little song, but we didn't practice our harmonies. <laughs> so this work is so important and the, the ideas um, are extremely ambitious, but I'm curious, you know, a lot of times the, the term global education can live in the abstract for many educators. Um, and I think maybe often because the word global is in there, it tends to be associated with just social studies teachers or history teachers. So I wonder if you have any suggestions and or ideas for how the kind of regular classroom teacher might approach making their classroom more globally minded? Yeah, great question, because um, we do spend too much time in the abstract. 
and you know I, I may not physically be traveling at 37,000 feet on a you know a jet going around the world <laughs> but I certainly spend a lot of my life you know sort of head up high in the clouds uh, and it's important to sort of bring that back down to the practical level and that's that's one of the things I've missed about travel actually is the amount of you know how long it was since I was in a school oh, yeah. um, and actually sort of uh, seeing the impact of this because I can see the impact of specific welfare programs, mm. but we know welfare programs don't exist in isolation. They are part of a really important series of, of sort of coherent and connected events and experiences in a child's life. And you know the what the schools do is really prime students for these experiences. And I think in some ways what welfare then tries to do is then provide those those experiences that the school themselves can't provide. You know, one school that's got intercultural things, but that if we were just doing them in isolation, they'd be so superficial. You know, they, they need that groundwork. Um, so maybe it's worth talking a little bit first of all about some of the practical things Welser does, and then we can take that down to okay, what does that mean from from the regular teacher in a in a school? Um, you know, fundamentally. What do we want from practical experience? If we want an 18-year-old student or a student around about that age to be ready for meaningful in-country experiences that they themselves play a significant role in designing. Hmm. Okay, so let's let's sort of get away from schools taking them there, parents taking them there, the student being empowered here. And there's a lot of steps to getting there. Um, Fundamentally, the way we look at it is we need those students ready to be able or sufficiently ready to be able to adopt an alternative cultural lens we don't need them at the end point they are still an 18 year old their education is lifelong so it's it's very much a sort of starting point in terms of that uh, that alternative lens so if a student was for example to uh, join our global scholars program it's generally the experiences there are about sort of two weeks in another country engaged in intercultural problem solving uh, where you're doing that in major global businesses. So for example, if you know if a student comes to China, uh, they will go and spend a couple of days with some executives at Huawei. Hmm. They will also go to Tencent. They will go to um, SAIG. I hope I remember that acronym correctly. It's a big automobile firm in Shanghai that, that is, is you know globally connected, globally present. Um, and they will go through some real live experiences there. Now, there's a number of priming experiences that, that are essential to that. The first is they really need to understand the compass for decision making in that country. And they need accurate knowledge of the socioeconomic, the political environment in that country. And, and they also need some core human skills, particularly in cross-cultural leadership. So there are things we can provide some quite concrete, practical experiences towards. Now, one of those things is how can you begin to understand the compass for decision making in another country if you don't understand your own mm. countries and your own compass yeah. for decision making? So that's, that's certainly a role schools will play. But I think beyond that, if students design experiences that fit with their own personal narrative and, and appeal to intrinsic motivation, so are relevant, connect with existing interests, etc., then they need to have a deep understanding of what they offer the world, their own sense of identity and what I offer the world, as well as what does the world need from me. And I think that's actually where a lot of schools, a lot of students are are let down. And that learning exists in what is perhaps best described like a double helix structure, you know, where where those sort of two parts, they, they spiral in sophistication. And there are some important things connecting that sense of what I offer and what the world needs for me. In the same way, you could apply knowledge and skills and the same thing, and what connects those two areas. And for Welser, that's about organizing that learning through action projects, small action projects that grow in their sophistication, grow in their scale. They may start off, the concept of the world for a 14-year-old is very different from your concept of the world and my concept of the world you know so we've got to start with with actually the world and trying to talk to them about places that are far distant they've got no chance of understanding and they're too complex i think that's just wasted time and education um you know it's much much better to put it within within the zone they can understand Mm -hmm. that zone of proximal development is, is absolutely crucial so 
you know, these action projects, drawing upon their knowledge, their skills, relevant to their needs, is really important. And we're moving away from trying to offer single one-off long courses to designing much smaller, bite-sized learning experiences that build coherence in the minds of our students or help them build coherence in their own minds through the action projects they engage with. So social impact, social entrepreneurship, all these things are really important for us because what you also need is you need a propensity for action. There's no point having students that are able to converse with people in different cultures around the world if they won't get the bus to the airport. Right. (laughs) Everything just falls flat, doesn't it? So, so what do I recommend the regular teacher? Well, that's, it's a good question. I'm going to dodge it slightly to begin with. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> you fair. You've already inspired um, me a lot. <laughs> so. Yeah, because I'll dodge it because I think too much pressure is placed on teachers, individual teachers, mm. to deliver everything. Mm. We, we hear this the Preach. whole time. I thought there'd be support from fellow teachers. <laughs> um, you, know, you hear it the whole time. Every single thing that happens is then a case of, well, schools should be responsible for mm. this. Schools should do that. In the US, for example, you know, students spend, what, seven hours a day in school? 180 days a year. So that's that's yeah. around one-seventh of their year. And even in a K, K through 12 school, they do that for just 15 years in what will hopefully be a very long life. So how much of their time are they actually in schools? And, and, and also we then use education and school interchangeably. Right. And I think we need, we need to avoid that. We need to move beyond that. So the teacher's not responsible for tackling these enduring challenges. But nor should they feel they don't have any influence. So just because they're not responsible doesn't mean they can have influence. I think... The regular teacher needs to get comfortable with the constraints and the opportunities. And I think it's the role of school leaders to help them do that. So it's about identifying the areas that students will need long term, that kind of globally minded student. What will the the, the globally minded student of the future need? And what areas of that can we as a school really effectively prime and and what can we our individual school context best contribute to and and that's again why i don't think schools should be thinking about them working in isolation that's why i believe in the power of the network and bringing schools together because collectively the 54 associate schools of welser through online means we can then help students who maybe need something that a single school isn't well placed to provide so that's that's an important thing but, but I mentioned earlier, you know, we believe schools are powerhouses. What that means is it means they are the engines that set things in motion. So most schools can do a lot of work within their own culture, and I think they should. Learning about other cultures is really superficial if you don't understand your own, or if it's periodic, or if it's not facilitated by people who are well-placed to facilitate it. So why put the pressure? You know, we shouldn't be ashamed if there are apparent weaknesses in the diversity of our schools or diversity of our curriculum. We have limited resources at our disposal. We need to be mindful of what we can do and we need to be mindful of where we can make good connections to help us with those gaps and and to either be able to work those and integrate them into the sort of the experience we can provide, that bigger package we provide our, our students and their families or be able to point them in the right direction. And to say there are things you can do outside of school. A, a quick example, maybe. Um, a, lot of, a lot of school curriculums in the US have changed the literature, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, literature in schools, English literature has changed. And that's driven by a need to have a more globally minded or a more diverse literature base. And that, that's not something I, I disagree with. But it doesn't necessarily mean the teachers in that school are the best place to deliver learning in that literature. So we've got to be mindful as to the impact, the outcome we're actually having, and not just believe because we've changed that it's having impact. But I I don't think we should also be dismissing the existing literature. Uh, And, you know, we've got to be careful as well. So I'm not saying we we should forget about other literature, just focus on what we've always had. It's about having those conversations to say, well, 
what was this literature providing? What are the anchors in our culture that actually students do need to have an understanding of to thrive in our own culture as well, to thrive in their culture? Culture is on so many different scales as well. What are those anchors? And the school, rather than trying to get through lots and lots and lots and lots of books, is better placed to focus on a few core anchors deliver those in a really meaningful, authentic way. So to use the, the strengths, the skills, experience of the teachers to deliver the literature they're comfortable with, but to then allow students to go and explore literature that is relevant and has interest to them, that is not driven by somebody else saying, this is important, you read, but that they then start thinking, because actually we could all come up with lists of hundreds of thousands of books that a child should read in their life. The reality is they're going to read a fraction of those. So it's better that the ones they read are the ones they're going to engage with. And, and engagement comes from interest. It comes from relevance. You know, all those different things that, that drive in, in, you know, intrinsic motivation. And so I think we need to give space. It's not about what should the teacher be doing and, and actually doing something meaningful the whole time. It should be, you know, what opportunities is that teacher creating? And, and how are they getting those students to then want to go and dive deeper into something that's important? And then you've got the power of the group. When those students come back and you've got a group of maybe 15, 20 students who have been looking at different things, they also learn from each other. Whereas the sort of existing paradigm is very teacher-centric, very controlled. Um, and so and, and I think that leads to globally minded because what it does is it fosters a sense of, you know, a, se a sense of responsibility. It fosters a sense of curiosity and, and a desire to engage. And it also shows that there are many different ways of getting to the same point. You know, all those students in the class may be reading different books, thinking about things in different ways, but then there are also some sort of, some, some overarching themes, some uh, points that connect them. Um, I hope I haven't wondered too much there from the wow. focus of your question. As a past um, English teacher, um, those, that, that's what the game is, right? That, that is absolutely what it is. You may have a shared text, um, but if you're not also op offering opportunities for, for thematic sort of what you're describing is the classic literature circle thing we talk about in English education, right? Like everyone's reading yeah. a book around a singular theme, but then you come together, right? And then, then you have 16 different sorts of perspectives and, and windows and mirrors with which to uh, make sense of it. So I could think about uh, all the different ways in, to set that up. Yes. Yeah, I'll just add in, add in one other thing. This connects with what I said at the beginning, you know, my academic experience at school being unfulfilling. Um, mm. You know, I remember my, my, my father used to spend you know, so long the holidays. Well, what are you reading around your subjects? What are you reading around your subjects? I used to get mm. this thing about reading around subjects. Huh. I had no idea what this meant. What do you mean by reading around subjects? How do you read around subjects? I go to school. I get given textbooks. I get told what to do. Our time is filled. What do you mean by reading around subjects? <laughs> and I think that is an important starting point because it, it links again to this sense of how do you develop your sense of purpose? And, and you, you can't go and be, there's one thing being globally minded, there's another thing being globally active, there's another thing, you know, being globally impactful. You, you can't do that unless you have a sense of purpose. And um, what is your purpose? And I think schools talk an awful lot about trying to develop purpose and identity yeah. in the students, but, but then they <laughs> never give the students any opportunity. No to sort of find their own. It's, it's like character education. You will become this character that you, <laughs> predetermines you need to move towards. You will have this purpose that we are telling you you need to have. Um, yeah, sorry, I, I wander off. No, it's wonderful. Okay, this may be a British-American thing, moment. I need reading round your subjects. Does that refer to reading books that are interdisciplinary? Does it mean, what does reading round mean? It's a great question. <laughs> wish, Did we ever figure it out? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it's... It is about sort of um, reading and seeing the connections beyond that. I think there's, it's going to differ based on, on the, the particular subject. Now, I specialize more in geography, history, mm. um, things like that, languages. Um, and it's going to be different if you are, uh, you know, depending on the particular topics and the things that interest you. But for example, um, you know, there was, there was obvious connections between history and geography. So I was very interested when I got to university, I spent a lot of time looking at development studies, for example. And, uh, you know, but initially I wanted to apply to do history at university because I was really interested in the scramble for Africa that we was doing because that sort of colonial period interested me. And, and that wasn't taught in geography. It was only when I was writing my A-level exams, I suddenly thought, actually, what I want to do is geography at university. <laughs> I had to sort of change everything. Um, 
so you know I, I would have if i'd been reading around my subject a lot more so in geography looking at, at populations things i would have seen some of those connections to history if i'd been reading around the history an awful lot more i'd have seen the connections in the geography but it, it's it, it is more it is a lot more complex it's simple things um you know uh, when i was at university i studied victorian cities as a module and the reading list was charles dickens hmm. well hang on why am i doing english literature reading list mm. and <laughs> fiction when i'm in a you know <laughs> sort of i was looking at more practical things well, it's because Dickens is the place you should be. Now, why was doing Victorian cities? We well, can't understand a third world city in the modern context unless you understand a Victorian city. Mm. So Dickens is as relevant now as it was then. And so even that sort of fiction, even these other important cultural anchors, cultural anchors in our lives can also have, uh, you know, connections um, to what we're doing. But it's, it's about more than connections. Um, yeah. So that's what it's the exploration. It's it's it, that's such a beautiful phrase I'm going to now use that I've never heard <laughs> or thought about, and I am you know in reading education, and so this notion of reading around your classes. We talk a lot about content area literacies and what texts are you using, but it's the now I'm hearing it as is an exploration. So how are we giving youth ways to almost play their way around, like the way way you would in a museum, right? An exhibit, Absolutely. And, you, and you walk around curiosity and you find what interests leads you. To and curiosity, you, yeah. 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 We, have a new, we have a new term. We have a new term. Good. <laughs> I, I really loved what you were saying about offering more bite-sized chunks. So, and like starting closer to home, I, I was really into that. And I kept, my mind kept coming back to like mission, you know, mission trips and stuff like that as a way of like trying to try on a different cultural lens too. And just also just trying to think like, what are the bite-sized things we can do at St. Andrews for our kids? And what are the opportunities? And it's obviously going into Jackson and the surrounding areas and just figuring out because, you know, there's there's a lot of opportunities that I think I would love to start being really intentional about with students. I think bite size is the key for all of us. Whoever's listening to this podcast, whether you're in Jackson or in more of a rural county in Mississippi, um, whatever school you're at, you can think of ways to engage students in that way. Yeah. Agreed. I also loved your your emphasis on the power of networks. That like a school's not an island, and we can't do everything at all the you know it, to everyone. But that by interacting with other schools and being a part of networks like World Leading Schools Association, or even networking with people and places in our local communities, that then education is so much more powerful for our students. So if anyone listening Absolutely. wants to partner with us, yeah. please help. Yeah, to send letters to my fifth grade students about math, let's do it. Let's, let's do, do it. Let's do a letter exchange. Yeah. Oh, here's how I solved this problem. Now it's your turn. Oh, my gosh. Oh. I love that that just excited you so much. <laughs> well, I think a great extension to that, and it's something I've, I spoke with um, Tom Shepard about a few months ago, um, you know, we're – as, a, as an organization, we're um, looking to launch, not looking to, we are going to launch the Global Impact Program in September. And um, the Global Impact Program is, is a sort of a way in which we're putting together some, some of our existing things, cross-cultural leadership program, but, but also putting this together other courses, other experiences that we're designing. And, you know, you sort of imagine uh, Jackson, you mentioned Jackson, Toby. Um, Jackson as a place for students to go to, to deeply understand civil rights mm. and to understand the, the experience. You know, it's, it's the cultural anchors that drive the current narrative and the rhetoric in, in the US mm. today. You know, th those are not things I, I can read about those in the UK, but it's very different from actually being to a place where those things have been pulled together. And if St. Andrews was, instead of saying, well, okay, we, we want to still be a really leading school in our region. So we need to sort of invest in these resources and invest in this and da, 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 spend money on all these. No, if St. Andrews was to really invest in becoming a center for excellence in, you know, kind of, um, uh, however you want to frame the kind of the studies of, of civil rights in the U S and those 53 other Welser associate schools are going to become centers for excellence in other areas, then there's a whole load of things that St. Andrews can provide that those other schools can access and integrate into their own curriculum by having specialist experts given towards creating and designing experiences that, that can then be globally accessible 
accessible online, but then ultimately lead to students then saying, you know where I need to be this summer? Mm. I actually need to be in Jackson. I need to be in Jackson for two weeks. And the reason why I need to be there is because of this. And what I'm going to be doing after that is this. This is what it's going to allow me to do. That, to me, is a sort of power of networks and exciting thing. Um, and, and, and then means that, you know, that each of these individual schools starts developing, again, a sort of a sense of, of purpose within its own school. That when you go back to that question of how do we develop globally minded, well, you don't have to do that by covering everything. You know, if, if, if that's your particular thing that you can really offer and you've got the museums on site, you've got the, you know, the experts, presumably at local universities, local organizations who can contribute towards that, then that's what you should focus on. And, and then ensure that students, when they do their reading around the subject, when they do their, their kind of <laughs> deeper dive, they're doing that because they're able to access that same excellence, that same expertise in the areas that that are now have meaning to them or that allow them to get comparison and contrast uh, you know if, if, if they've if they've engaged in that debate in jackson whether they're a st andrews student or somebody else who's been coming in and using st andrews resources and then they go to to let's say wellham girls school in Dehradun in north india to go and understand elements of indian philosophy and its impact on on decision making they're going they're going to be able to make some really sophisticated deep uh, understandings there so yeah that that's what excites me <laughs> us too i think yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh speaking of programs that wilson does uh i see that you recently watched a, a webinar in intercultural intelligence in the context of covid19 so when i hear intercultural intelligence my brain thinks you know what this is you understand what inter means and cultural means and that always gets me in trouble so <laughs> <laughs> So would you please kind of tell me about um, how we, what that is and how we need to pay attention to it right now in our classrooms, it, it, whether we teach pre-K, which mm. some folks at St. Andrews do, or whether mm. we're with, you know, 17-year-olds? Yeah, definitely. And um, gosh, intercultural is one of those really misused, <laughs> banded around words as well. I mean, it's often used interchangeably with cross-cultural, for example, yeah, yeah. intercultural understanding, cross-cultural understanding, intercultural intelligence, cultural intelligence, you know, like any word in, in education, uh, personalization means so many different things to different mm. people. Um, <laughs> and there are, some, there are some big challenges there. So, okay, it, it's, it's got some simple definitions. Um, your capability to function uh, effectively in a culturally diverse setting, that, that could be a way to try and understand it. Um, we tend to talk about intercultural experiences, I, that idea of bringing people together who, who represent different cultural uh, you know, backgrounds. And, and, and generally at Wells, so that's, that's seen initially on that sort of macro scale level of culture. It's about nationalities. Um, and, and then within that, you know, obviously things get much deeper and people can see cultures. But we also try through a lot of our experiences to get people understanding that just on the family level, the personal, the family level, to see culture at different scales. And I think that's one of the things that is often misunderstood as well, is it is just about macro culture and cross-cultural understanding is just about understanding the differences between different countries and how different countries do things. Mm. Um, and, and the idea that 1.4 billion Chinese people are exactly the same, you know, it's just... It's one of those things that we, we, we can't see in our own communities, but we can see in other communities. And we can start applying these big banded, oh, they all do that to other communities when we recognize the differences within our own. Um, so, you know, there's some simple things. You, you, can, you can be in a monocultural setting and gain cross-cultural understanding because you can have those discussions that help you understand about different cultures. Um, but but intercultural experience is really bringing people from different cultures working together. So how how can teachers prepare students for this? Um, I, I think the first thing to bear in mind, as with many things in education, is these kinds of human skills are the result of an accumulation of experiences. Okay, they they become habitual. They become quite often, you know, part of the unconscious, um, and you know. We're trying to affect the way in which our mind is open to new ideas. And I'll give you an example. So my, my eldest son is six years old. So I think in, in the US that still counts as kind of... Is kindergarten. That sort of, 
kindergarten. Uh, yes, it's not. We call it year one in the UK, but uh, but that's kind of the next level. So he'll be starting grade one next year. Okay. Mm. So um, give an example. <laughs> I've seen this firsthand because, of course, it's remote learning. Um, he spent a lot of time in my office near me doing his uh, his schoolwork. Uh. Um, <laughs> And, and it's, it sort of highlighted something, a big contrast between how I learned maths when I was his age and how he's learning maths. Mm. So they place great emphasis. Uh, and his school is the junior school, actually, of one of the Welser Associate schools. So, you know, I, I'd like to think they are that sort of globally minded uh, institution. They place great emphasis on students demonstrating a range of ways they can get to the same answer. Oh, that sounds so funny. Toby. Yeah. Yeah. Now, <laughs> that wasn't the way I was taught math. Same. I, I, yes. I didn't have to There's one way. There's one do way. It, do, do it, it, do it this way. And do it fast. <laughs> yeah, well, precisely. Do it fast as well. So it was a case of, you know, um, this is, <laughs> you know, your success was how quickly you could complete the book. Uh, you're rewarded for just using one method, the method your teacher showed you, you're told to replicate it. You did that. You're rewarded for doing so. Um, and, and so you construct, what does that mean? Well, it, it means you construct in your mind a belief that the way um, you do something is either to use one method or that your method is best. Mm. So how does that prepare you for people who have got different ways of doing things? It doesn't. It enforces the other uh, <laughs> habits. Um, so, so suddenly you encounter another method and that method now seems difficult to you. Uh, so, so why would you give it a try? Um, it's been habitually reinforced. There's no value in looking for another way. Uh, and this is actually one of the problems my son has. He, he doesn't like this whole, well, I've done it, so why do I need to go and look for another way to do it? <laughs> fair, fair. I have to try and convince him as to why he doesn't see the longer-term purpose. And again, that's, that's a problem schools have, is we don't, we don't help them see longer-term purpose, and we don't help build that, that sense of why we're doing things the way we're doing it. Um, now, if, if that approach in my son's school was, was isolated to the maths classroom, it would have very limited impact. So it, it can't be something that a single teacher is doing either. There has to be a sense to which you know, colleagues come together and the school agrees on certain things and, and sets its values. And that's where school leaders, you know, you know again, become so important uh, in what they, what they sense. Um, I think other ways, you know, schools spend a lot of time putting student work up on the wall. And, and when I was younger, that work was shoved up, it was put up there, and, and that was it. It was just there. Um, you know, and now I'm seeing a lot more schools spend a lot of time uh, making sure that students notice, that they discuss, mm. and that they document as a group how different students went about their work. Uh, that helps foster in young children that there are many different ways of doing things. Uh, and I, I don't think we can lose sight of how powerful that is. Mm. Uh, and and I think what can sometimes happen in the, you know, we can set out with these big aims of, well, we're going to spend lots of time, you know, going through that and discussing the different ways we got there and highlighting it. And then the reality hits and, and that's one of the first things to go. Now I've spoken with, with school leaders before. He said, well, you know, designing a new program, we put everything on the plane and, and then as the plane takes off, there's things that we need to need to drop. But I think what's happened in education, we've always dropped those things that actually have this long-term impact, even if they can't be short-term quantifiable. Um, you know, sort of moments. With older children, I, I think some different approaches can take place. So I think with, with older children, you need a combination of a proactive and responsive curriculum. So often we try and have these bolt-on curriculums. Um, so, for example, you know, uh, sex education, topical thing at the moment. Uh, there's clearly some big things we need to address there. So let's bolt on some additional stuff and, and let's just cover stuff. Let's have some people coming in and talking mm -hmm. about stuff. Let's cover all these different bits. Oh, great. We've got coverage. School leaders can see it's covered. They've ticked all the boxes. <laughs> Job done. Um, no, <laughs> not at all. Not if you want to have impact. So we, there are some elements that do need to be proactive. Students need to be aware of what is likely to be coming up in their life. And they need to be primed for those experiences. But most of the work needs to be responsive, responding to what then happens. Right. And as teachers, it's those teachable moments. And it's about having the resources and the confidence and the, you know, the skill base to then be able to deliver those responsive moments that 
have impact because they're now relevant. I mean, I've used the word relevant a lot of times in this podcast. <laughs> I, hope, I hope people at home aren't thinking which is more relevant to our hand heats, you know. Um, <laughs> but but it is absolutely crucial. And so you can have this proactive thing. So we're, we're at the moment doing some really interesting work with Tsinghua University and their, their Center for Global Competence Development. Um, and that's about identifying what are the proactive, what's the proactive priming students need to be able to engage in intercultural experiences. And then from that, introducing students to the knowledge, the skills for them to be able to set hypotheses before they enter that experience, that then allows them when they're in that intercultural setting to have those moments of realization and to have those hypotheses you know, ready to be tested. Their reflection now relates to these hypotheses. And then their reflection then sets up the next steps of relevant learning for them. It's then that emerges from the group reflection and therefore the, the adults, the facilitators, the educators can then respond and deliver that new knowledge, that new skills that is needed. And it's these little step by step, but a, a longer term package has been pre-mapped out. We, we know the core moments that are needed. We know the things children are going to be exposed to. We can plan most of these things but we don't need to deliver them in a linear way. We need to deliver them in a way that is relevant at the time, is bite-sized um, for them. And so like many human skills, intercultural intelligence is best learned when it's based on the application. Mm -hmm. um, that's at least the intrinsic motivation again. And it's through this that the mindsets, the habits will change in a lasting and meaningful way. Uh, so, so hopefully that sort of responds. And obviously the work we do with Tsinghua is the kind of work we'll be sharing with schools and and sharing our associates to help them then in the sort of the particular things they're doing adapt and modify their practice as well based on that i was looking at toby the whole time <laughs> reflection <laughs> math math connections yeah. um i have never toby have you thought about it in that way i've never thought about the ways in which we teach math and how they foster intercultural like yeah, perspectives that is so cool uh, but of course it makes perfect of sense course. too i think everyone just thinks you know, the way to, I think literature is usually seen as the gateway to intercultural mm -hmm. stuff. Mm. Um, they're like, yeah, you want a kid to get empathy, you know, have them read. That's right. That's but right. Mm -hmm. No, also have how them, they problem solve. Yeah, have them, have them share about how they, how they all solve problems. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Well, we are so close to out of time and I have one quick actual question and then we have two like freebies um, <laughs> that are just like so easy and fun that we're asking every guest. Do yeah. you have time to hang for one more question? I, I, absolutely. I do. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, you have hinted and not hinted, you have explicitly talked a lot about equity in various ways. Um, and actually, I think uh, first question, um, you said that this pandemic has exacerbated or made more visible inequities that were already, mm. of course, very much um, alive and well. Um, and I think interestingly, that's also true of technology. Sometimes technology makes visible inequities that are, were already there as well. Um, so I also noticed um, Amy Rankin in, in one of your publications had a, a, yeah. a piece called COVID-19. We are all in this together, or are we? So uh, lots swirling in my head around this notion of equity. And um, But I guess the, the question of the day for you is, you know, can you speak to how we in this current moment can prioritize access and equity, um, both as schools like St. Andrews or organizations like WellSA or um, public schools in the state of Mississippi mm. and folks that might be listening. So uh, that's that's a huge question. Um, but any piece of wow, that? Wow, what you're a great question! <laughs> that, that's actually a great question. And you know, Amy is a really inspirational speaker, um, mental health professional, and educator. And uh, yeah, we've been fortunate. She's she's spoken at Welser conferences, delivered some webinars, done some writing for us, and um, you know, a fantastic person to stimulate thoughts in your mind. Uh, and it is a huge question. It's a great question. And I've probably got my quickest answer to it, actually, of all the, all the questions. <laughs> yeah. that you um, I immediately think of the, the Zulu word Ubuntu. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to sort of mistranslate. It's a really challenging word to translate, um, e even though people have painstakingly sort of explained it to me, uh, you know, sort of people for whom you know, it is part of their, their first language. Um, it roughly translates as I am because you are. Mm. So it recognizes that a person is only a person through other people. Now that's pretty powerful. I think that helps change how we prioritize 
access and equity. Mm. Because it completely flips the way in which most of us approach or how, not necessarily how most of us, but how from a bigger macro systems perspective, we have approached access and equity. And I think people who reflect on that, I am because of you, or I am because you are, sorry, or, you know, people are a person, only person through other people will start to realize how that transforms how we see access and equity, particularly in education. And I, I think that puts out some big challenges to our existing approaches to trying to widen access. I'm not dismissing the approaches that have been taken. I think they've been done within the, the resources and within the sort of the knowledge and the experience that people had at the time. But we certainly need to dramatically change the way in which we think about access and equity. Um, and that's not about lifting people out of one context into another mm. through financial bursaries. Um, it's about thinking about those other communities, the communities those people are in, and, uh, and, and really shifting the whole way in which we view that. So, yeah, I, I'll stop there, aware of time. I'll use that as my excuse to not, not get myself drawn deeper into what is a really, really big, challenging question. But hopefully that helps. That, that's how I see it. And that's how I think about it. Beautiful. Well, yeah. it flips it from uh, folks need to sweep in and save someone, right? Into mm. um, we, we are only here because of. Yeah, that, I like that. We will move from a very serious and important topic <laughs> to some, some questions kind of just for fun before we wrap up. So you mentioned that you knew you wanted to go into education from a pretty mm. early age, but did you have a teacher that maybe inspired you or was just a favorite teacher um, during your time in school? Oh, wow. Yeah, no, I had loads. Um, not, not only because I was was sort of fortunate in terms of the schools I went, I was fortunate to have some really inspirational teachers, but... Um, I think, yeah, just, wow, what what an amazing lot of teachers I had. Um, even if at times I, I was quite a contrary teenager, so I'm really? I the easiest person to teach. In fact, I'm still contrary. I don't know that's changed. But, you know, so so some of them, it didn't always seem like an easy relationship. But, you know, I, I mentioned that for me, the big influence on that pastoral side of things, that sort of personal development. So, you know, yes, there was some great, my history teacher at prep school, prep school's our middle school. Um, you know, David Burt, phenomenal, really enthused me in the subject, set up a lifelong interest in history and, and an understanding of the purpose of history. But it was actually people like Joe Summers, the woodwork teacher, or actually, I think about it, it's all like Mr. Leith, who was a sort of, um, he, he sort of came came to the school to sort of help out with a few different things. He, he was a formerly a professional temp in bowling person, I think, actually. But he was a phenomenal sportsman. So he did a lot of sports coaching. And I remember actually in a science lesson, I was truly bored out of my mind looking out the window at him sort of mowing the, the cricket pitches. I hated cricket, but I loved the fact that the sort of he was always just so positive and enthusiastic mm. and like really invested time in us. Like Joe Summers in the woodwork, she was probably the first person to really, you know, I guess really give me confidence to believe in who I was mm. from a teacher perspective, like really understand who I was. Um, and that, that was reinforced. You know, by the time I got to Eton, the partial life, there's no surprise that some of the big influences, they've gone on to be great headmasters. My, first, my two housemasters, John, John Clawton, then Tom Batty. My, my tutor, Alistair Land, who went on to be, he's now head of Harrow. Um, you know, phenomenally successful headmasters because of who they were. You know, they, they were the role models, that you wanted to be who they were and how they approached things. Um, but it, it's also worth actually, not just the teachers when I was a student, but the teachers when I was a teacher. So those who taught me to teach, um, one of whom I, I work with very closely now, Peter Merrill, formerly of Andover, uh, you know, I've just learned so much from, from him. But then at Eton, one of the most undervalued educators, because he was light years ahead of everybody else, um, Phil McLeod. He was mainly a PE teacher, did some geography teaching in my department. We did you know, big field trips together to all sorts of places. Um, absolutely transformative he and i used to have a weekly breakfast meeting we used to meet the coffee shop on the high street on a friday morning the single biggest influence on me uh, and, and stays with me and actually speaking of that now reminds me it's been too long since i was last in contact with him. <laughs> do <laughs> I, it right after i this. am in need of that kind of energy that he provides you know yeah but blessed with so many people um and, and it's great i'm uh, privileged the, the virtue of not being in a single school is i get to meet educators 
uh, in so many different schools, cool. in so many different environments. And it's, it's simply wonderful. You know, they're, they're all people who are keen to learn and to share and um, have, have that same desire to really do the very best for those children in front of them. <laughs> wonderful. Yeah. Um, I definitely uh, identify with that. I feel like I'm very lucky to have been surrounded by excellent teachers. Uh, but my last question is, um, and now that we have this wonderful new term for reading round, but <laughs> is there a, a single book that you would recommend, like if you could make all teachers read it and also kind of get it, uh, what book might you recommend that folks read that you think would just be like, this will make the world a better place, or at least it'll make the state of education. Oh, brilliant. Um, yeah, brilliant, brilliant question. And uh, yeah, there is one book that if, if everybody read, it would be a great foundation for changing learning. And you've probably read it, hopefully, uh, NeuroTeach. I'll put that on NeuroTeach. List. okay. Absolutely, I mean, it's from the, the Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning. I think I've got the acronym correct, mm -hmm. CTTL. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you, you know, um, St. Andrews in Delaware, and uh, that book, it's just, if all teachers could get a firm understanding of the science of learning and enough understanding of the brain, we'd have a different education system. You could do everything else from that. The big challenge we face is that's the thing that is currently um, lacking, <laughs> is, is that. Uh, and, and so changing teachers and changing education, because it's not just teachers then, it's school leaders. You know, those teachers will become school leaders. So it's not just change that. If, if everybody had that as a foundation, oh, wow, we, 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 would, we, <laughs> we would be making rapid advancement in education. I think I, our, our students would be delighted if we all read it. Charlie, I'm making a list right now of like dream if we can have book clubs this summer. And that is on there. So Toby. Oh, uh, yeah, definitely. Join definitely get it on there. Really accessible. The hardware. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's beautiful, beautifully written, so cleverly put accessible. together, accessible, wonderful, and really impactful. And you can go and apply it immediately. Yeah, that's it's right. not one of those books. That's, that's what we like. You know, mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Charlie, this yeah. has bring, been... bring it forward from the summer. Get them reading it sooner. <laughs> oh, you're right. Why, why wait? Fair, <laughs> why wait? fair. Yeah. Fair, fair. And rereading books is good for book clubs. Oh, Come on. Also love a True. good reread. <laughs> that's right. That is right. Well, Charlie, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much from, for joining us from the beautiful it's been wonderful. Thank you so outskirts much. of London. I guess you're not really the outskirts of London. Two hours uh, away. Thankfully not, no. Thank, thank you. <laughs> okay, okay. Just the beautiful rural England yeah. countryside. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this has just been great. I feel inspired. I know. Yep. We feel ready to go. Um, I, I can't wait until I can actually go to Jackson. To literally um, go. And, yes. Uh, yes, yeah, so literally go. And I'm so glad to be the person to connect you to the wonderful Emily, who I'm sure you'll be working and seeing her name on all sorts of things. <laughs> Definitely. It's now going to spring up in a completely different <laughs> right. way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now you have a face. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Awesome. Well, take good care. And again, thank you so much for your time. Thanks. No, thank you all so much. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it not just for this, but the, the kind of the series as well. And um, one of the things we need to maybe have a conversation about through email is, is how can we as well at Welsa sort of help promote and oh, um yes you know and I kind of share it I mean we were actually sort of one of my plans uh for this academic year was to start our own sort of podcast series we're doing a webinar we want to have a series of podcasts that then inform webinars workshops oh, yeah. through to conference um I, and just for various reasons we haven't got as far as you've managed to get um so I'm also keen to sort of you know pick your brains about how do you make it sexual and how can we also there's no point us all doing, lots of people are doing podcasts. There's no yes. point us all going and doing our own thing. There's no point me now doing a series of, of COVID-19 related like you've been doing or <laughs> other things. Um, but how can we then draw that? And how can we take what you've learned from the podcast and maybe bring one of you into one of our podcasts to then discuss the impact that's had and, you know. We would love that. And of course, you're we using continue. this opportunity to network. Of course, you walk the talk, <laughs> you walk the talk. So we will absolutely be following up um, once this is sort of edited. I mean, I feel like it was so perfect in every way, Jordan. You don't have to edit a thing because we're such a professionals. But Jordan will clean it up and edit it. And then we'll kind of send it your way and we'll include a graphic. And so you can share with your community. Um, and we will also be having a companion teacher podcast where um, we'll have three teachers listening 
listen to this very interview and just get together and chat about mm. it, um, which is kind of Brilliant. what we're most excited about to have sort of both together as, as um, companions. So mm. um, anytime you want to talk, I would love to talk about what we've learned. Um, yeah. And if you need any tech help, you don't want to talk to me. You want to talk to Jordan. Probably. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm happy to talk else, through yeah. my side of things at any point and just uh, very, very, very grateful. And yeah, we would love any help uh, promoting and sharing uh, once we get this rolling. Mm. We hope to start releasing um, you know, end of April, maybe Jordan, we'll see, uh, and kind of release one a week. I so. can't see Jordan's face. I know, as he's yeah. gathered 600 interviews. He looked a little and... skeptical with, we'll about see. that date. <laughs> to be determined, but, but it's coming. I, I have a remarkable ability to say in 3,000 words what can be said in 30. So if you want to oh. edit, you know, things down, please feel free to do it in any way, shape or form, because I, I'm fully aware of that. I don't know why people say that of me too. Yes. And in my emails somehow, people seem to think I could make them shorter. I don't know what they're talking about. It's all important context. It's important. Yeah. Yeah, I I write a PhD thesis in in quantity every day, if not in quality. (laughs) (laughs) Both quantity and quality. It was fabulous. It was so great. It was so great. And I love how it spanned, you know, young kids to college i mean this is that was really cool about this conversation in particular you really sort of hit the spectrum so no, appreciate it. the thing that's going to frustrate me later is always the case if you know when somebody sort of asks you questions and then six hours later oh why didn't i draw that <sighs> example why didn't i say that always and there's so many things your questions are so broad you know yes. covering so many important things that i would have thought oh, i had a much better example i should have used <laughs> <laughs> like so, yeah, three o'clock in the morning i'm gonna wake up really angry well, part two. We'll have a part two. Yeah. And email, email all that to Julian. We'll bring it up in the companion. Box. There you yes. go. There you go. Can come up. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank no, you again. Great. Thank you all. Have a really good rest of the day. And I really appreciate your time and, uh, and input putting this together. Thank you. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you so Take good care. Yeah, all the best. Bye. Bye. Hey, all you K-12 teachers out there. Thanks for all you do. Now get out there and try some stuff.